morning, church family. I'm glad that you're here today and uh, get to worship together. And I don't have to stay in these bounds because the video cameras aren't working. Then uh, thank you for coming over from Theater 14 and you're over here. I might run up and talk to you right next to your seat today. I'm glad to be back. And uh, I haven't preached for a couple of weeks. Pastor Jason's done a great job uh, preaching over the last couple of weeks on our Red Letters series. But I'm back and some of you have asked me some questions. I want to take a moment before we jump back into Red Letters and just address specifically um, some of you have written comments or asked a question about uh, the situation with same-sex marriage and the Supreme Court's ruling. And I'll say, uh, Pastor Jason mentioned a couple weeks ago, just uh, God's sovereign. And I will say this, you don't need to be afraid of anything. God's got a plan. He's still on his throne. He's still ruling and reigning. He wants you to live during this time. And I will tell you personally, so not speaking on behalf of the, sort of the whole church, but I'll tell you personally, I'm glad that this has happened. The reason why I'm glad that it's happened is not because I endorse same-sex marriage. I don't. God doesn't, and so I can't. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24 says that marriage between one man and one woman, uh, two are supposed to become one. He's got a plan for it to put a demonstration of uh, his glory and his, the gospel, the way that you love one another. Talked about in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, between one man and one woman. So I'm not endorsing that, but I am saying I'm glad because what it does is it shows that people aren't bluffing. You watch the news and you hear the different stuff that's happening. It's like uh, folks are showing their cards. Um, lost people are really lost. We really live in a time of darkness. We have the gospel. We have the light. It is dark. We don't live in some whatever we'd want it to be, Christian culture, Christian community. It's not a reality, and that's not the goal. And God's placed us here at this time to be a light to this place, and people that are lost are really lost. You know what that means? They will be occupying hell one day, not because they have a different view politically, but because they don't know the Savior. And so what this should be, I'm glad, not for our country, but for us as Christians, it's a wake-up call to show us this isn't a game. People are really, they really believe this stuff, it's really true, they're really deceived, and we need to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. If you want a full statement on uh, what, what I think about this, you can go to my blog, scottlear.com. I put that on there. I put a message that goes along with um, this topic that we're talking about on that blog. You can check that out. Um, but I will just say, don't be afraid. The sky's not falling. God is still in control. He is still on his throne, and he has a plan, and he has a reason that you're living during these days at this time, and for those of you who are followers of his, on his mission. And so, with that being said, today we're going to jump back into the series, Red Letters, and we're talking about today really one of the most basic of all the commands. We've been looking at the commands of Jesus through this series, and we're talking about following him. And so we'll talk about that in just a moment. Let me pray for us, and then we'll open up the scriptures together. We're going to be in Luke today, for those of you who like to get a head start and get there, Luke chapter 9. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Uh, that we get to be guided by your spirit and be instructed by your truth. And I pray that you would speak through my lips to each one of us. I pray that we would rest in your sovereignty. But I pray you'd change us. I pray you'd take us to a deeper level of, level of intimacy with you, a uh, greater commitment to your cause. Help us to repent from sin. Um, help us, any of us that are deceiving ourselves and playing games, to stop playing around and uh, get on mission for you. And I pray that you'd just speak. Speak to our hearts, speak to our lives. I pray you'd save people. I pray you'd use us to bring the gospel with grace and love and mercy and kindness and truth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So today we're talking about the most basic of the commands, perhaps, is follow me. You see Jesus say it at the beginning of the Gospels. In John chapter 1, he says it to some disciples. In Mark chapter 1, he says it. And at the end of the Gospels, you see it too. He calls, so he calls a guy like Peter, come follow me. Drop your nets, I'll make you fishers of men. Follow me. It's interesting, then in John chapter 21, after Peter's denied Jesus three times, Jesus restores him. He's gracious. He's continually given second chances. And he tells him to go be used on mission for him. Go feed my sheep. And he says, follow me. Don't worry about other people. Don't worry about what's going on. You follow me in your life. 
And so what does it mean to follow? We follow lots of stuff, and lots of us mean different things by following. If I asked you, if we did a survey today and said, how many of you are followers of Jesus? I bet the majority of people here would say that you are. We did it one time when I taught on evangelism, just asked, how many of you claim to be born-again Christians? And it, was a, it was, didn't matter which service. It was a majority of people. It was different for each service. There are some of you that are not. If I asked only the people who said that you are followers of Jesus, what do you mean by following? I bet you would get 50 different answers. Because we mean follow in lots of different ways. We follow lots of different things. We follow the weather. We follow our favorite sports teams. We follow different trends and fads. We eat certain foods for certain times because one week coffee causes cancer, the next week it heals cancer. Then there's one week that bread's not bad, not good for you, the next week bread's good for you. And so we follow these different things. We follow all this stuff. Just to give you a glimpse into my life, I'm a huge sports fan. I love sports, all kinds of different sports. I watch you know, whatever, steeplechase, whatever's going on, whatever's on TV. And so I love competition. I love all that stuff. Two favorite sports are football and basketball. Not a good basketball player in any regard or anything like that, but I enjoy watching it. My favorite basketball team happened when I was in seminary. My wife and I both fell in love with the Dallas Mavericks. And so we think that it's still okay for that to be true, even though we live here, because we don't really have a team. There's no Raleigh Rockets or anything like that. And so we're Dallas Mavericks fans. I've been following them, love them. Our favorite player is Dirk Nowitzki. He's getting a little older for basketball age. 37 is like a senior citizen in basketball. And so he's younger than me, but he is a senior citizen in basketball. And so we know our team is on the, the downward trend. And now is the time in the NBA that's called free agency. For those of you who don't know what that is, it's a time when players that aren't under contract with their team have the opportunity to then explore switching to another team. And so your hope is that your team will get the best players that are available. This past week, there was one guy that we were hoping would become a Dallas Maverick. He was currently with the LA Clippers, and uh, his name is DeAndre Jordan, and we we're so excited about him coming. We were, we were away uh, last week on vacation, just an anniversary trip we took, and while we were out of town, we'd go out to eat, we'd hang out together, and then whenever Shannon wasn't at the table, we would check ESPN or... <laughs> Dallas, we, I say we, the two are one, we, as a married couple, we're checking the thing. And so I'm checking out, what is DeAndre Jordan going to do? 26-year-old guy, don't know anything about him, don't know anything about his life, but I'm very interested in this decision in his life. And so I go to his Twitter website, and I click follow, so I become his follower. He's, he's the best player that we might get, and so he's about to become my new favorite player in the NBA. I write him a tweet, a little recruiting, i got to do my part as a fan. Go Mavs, you know I'm telling then he verbally announces that he's going to become a Dallas Maverick. We're pumped. We're high five. We're excited. We're jumping around in our hotel room when he made the announcement. Fast forward to this week. If you're a sports fan, you know where this is headed because you've seen this. If you're not a sports fan. The guy flip-flops. It's time to actually sign the contract, and he decides he's going to stay with the L.A. Clippers. He's not coming to my Dallas Mavericks. It was every ounce of the spirit's control in my life. Not to go to his Twitter page and tell him, you're so unethical, you didn't do this. I didn't say all I, just, I guess I just did say all those things, but I didn't say those things at that moment. But I went to his website and I click unfollow. I'm out. I'm following you anymore. I'm not going to play for my team. I am a fickle follower when it comes to DeAndre Jordan. But don't judge me. Some of you are fickle followers too. You follow certain things that you no longer follow. The easiest example is probably trends. Think about fashion trends. Some of you who are in your 40s, aren't you glad you didn't have social media when you were in high school? When you went through that punk rock phase? When you wore those parachute pants? The bandana that you had on for your class pictures? Whatever, what, the mullet that you wore? You know, when you decided to dress up like DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince and you had the flip-up glasses? All that stuff. Aren't you glad that's not, that's what Throwback Thursday's for on Facebook. <laughs> but aren't you glad that stuff's not out there? You stop following that trend. Which makes you then reflect, doesn't it? What are the trends we're doing today 
Now we're going to look back in 15 or 20 years and think, what was I thinking? First thing that pops into my head, skinny jeans. <laughs> what a skinny Did you know they're actually going to have to have a medical warning on skinny jeans? Now, I read an article this week. There was a woman in Australia that was 35 years old. She's wearing these jeans. And she's in her house. She's lifting up, picking boxes up. And her calves started to swell up because her skinny jeans are too tight. She had to go to the hospital to have the jeans cut off. So there's going to be a warning label on her skinny jeans. She's going to regret those jeans. And so are you. And jamberries. Oh, wait, too close. Sorry. Or whatever other trends we're following right now that we won't be following someday. And so we're all fickle followers to some degree. So what do we mean when we say that we follow Jesus? More importantly, what did Jesus mean when he commanded us to follow him? More important than knowing the definition of what it is to follow him, which we'll get today. If you walk away today from this message and you can define followership, but you don't follow Jesus, fail. That's a big fail. Because the real question is not, what did Jesus define followership as? What does he mean when he says, follow me? You need to know that. But the real question is this, am I one? Am I a follow, based on what Jesus says the definition, not what we've heard in evangelical churches, not popular Christian books, not what we've made up in our own heads, but based on what Jesus says, am I a follower of Jesus Christ? He defines it in Luke chapter 9, and we're going to look really just at one verse today, verse 23, but we'll read verses 24, 25, 26 as they unpack verse 23. So Luke chapter 9, if you have a copy of the Bible, verses 23 through 26 is what we're going to be looking at. The parallel of this, for those of you who want to study this on your own, Mark chapter 8 that Pastor Jad read earlier when he's introducing that song that they wrote, and Matthew chapter 16, they all say the same words, and some of them give more details and some of them give less details, but they're the same account is what we're reading here today. What's happening in the Gospel of Luke, though, is that Luke's at a point where there's a transition in the Gospel. Up until this point, we've seen Jesus teach with authority. We've seen Jesus have power over nature. We've seen him have power over death. He's raised people from the dead. He's just fed the 5,000. He's done all these miracles, but he's transitioning from his public ministry and focusing in more on his disciples now. It's been two and a half years of his ministry so far. And now all the focus is going to shift to the cross. In fact, in Luke chapter 9 and verse 51, it says he set his face towards Jerusalem, which is his journey to the cross. And what he's just done with his disciples is he's told them what it means to go to the cross, what it means to be the Messiah, what it means to be the Christ. In fact, just so you get the context, I'll read you verse 22. We don't have it on the slides. We'll pop verse 23 up here in a second. But verse 22 says this. He said to them, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by your religious leaders, the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. That'd be shocking to them. He must be killed. And on the third day... Be raised to life. We know the disciples didn't process it. We know they didn't get this. Because when Jesus died on the cross, none of them said, no big deal. He'll be back in three days. They were all devastated. They had no category for the Messiah dying on a cross. Even though it was prophesied. Psalm chapter 22, Isaiah 52 and 53. Hundreds of years before it ever happened. They were expecting something else. They wanted a Christian culture. They wanted him to come and overthrow Rome and lead a political revolution but he came to deal with their sin, not their politics. And so Jesus says this about us, verse 23. He's just told them that in order to be the Christ, he has to have a cross. In order to have glory, he must suffer. He is going to have to die. And so we're saying we follow a guy who said he had to have the cross. We're saying you follow a guy who had to die. And you know what he says to us? You have to die too. You must have a cross too. Look at verse 23. Then he said to them all, that passage that Pastor Jad read, Mark, makes it clear. There's a crowd here. It's not just the 12. It says, And he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And then he gives commentary on this, verse 24. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Let's deny yourself. 
whoever loses his life for me will save it. They ask a rhetorical question, verse 25. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? Some of your translations say a soul. The answer to that rhetorical question is that's no good. Only a fool would do that. The Bible also says that fool says in his heart there is no God. And then verse 26, we get, what we see in verse 26 is it shows us we're not talking about some super level of commitment of Christians. This isn't the next level of commitment. This is basic Christianity one-on-one. He says, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him. Jesus will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. If anyone disowns me here on earth, then Jesus is going to disown you, disassociate with, cut off from, deny Deny self or deny Jesus. Take up cross, follow him. He gives these three different commands. And who's he talking to? Chris, I think you might have verse 23 there you can go back to. Verse 23. Who's he talking to here? Those of you who have a copy of the scripture, you can look at your own passage of scripture. Some say whoever. But it says there, in the very, why don't you get to the quotations? If anyone. So this isn't just Peter. This isn't Peter, James, and John, and whoever those other guys are. We can't remember their names. Matthew, Bartholomew, Philip, whatever those guys' names are. It's not just the super Christians. It's not just missionaries. It's not just those that want to go deeper. It's not those who are, are, are the special forces of Christianity. What does the passage say? If anyone. So just a random survey. How many people here are anyone? Raise your hands. Few people aren't raising your hands. You wouldn't raise your hand no matter what question I asked. I'm pretty sure. Anyone means everyone. So this is an all play. This is everybody. Every person is included in this. If any person is going to be a follower of Jesus, then he must. Did you see that word? Must. That's a Greek word, just three little letters. Day. And it's interesting to read it throughout the gospel of Luke. It's used of Jesus multiple times. Jesus must do whatever the father tells him to do. He must go to the cross and die. In fact, in verse 22 that I just read to you, it says the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by these religious leaders and die on the cross and rise from the dead. If he doesn't do it, it's not an option. It's the only way. If he doesn't do it, if there's any other way, how cruel is God that he kills his son? But he says he must do this. It's the only way. And if he doesn't do that, do you know what that means for us? We are without hope. We are without God. We are lost. We as Christians are to be most pitied because we're claiming we know a way that doesn't exist if he didn't die on the cross and rise from the dead. So you are without hope. You are separated from God. And there is no solution for your salvation if there's no cross. He must suffer and die. And then it says here, we must This is a must for us. If anyone, every person, all play, if anyone is going to follow Jesus, come after, some of your translations say, would be my disciples, would follow, they all mean the same thing. If anyone's going to follow him, be one of his followers, he must, and do three things. In that one verse, there's three commands. Deny self, take up cross, follow him. Those are our three points today. And it's interesting the way that in the original language this is constructed. The first two commands have a tense, an aorist tense, and the last command is a present tense. And what happens is if you obey the first two commands, the third one emerges. That's what's being shown there. You do these first two commands, you will be a follower. So Jesus defines it with these three different things. And those are our three points. Any follower of Jesus Christ must deny self. That's our first one. Any follower of Jesus must 
deny self. So what does that mean? What does it mean to deny yourself? Well, let me first tell you what it doesn't mean. It does not mean just self-denial. Denying self is not simply self-denial. So some people think, well, are you going to tell us we all have to, like, we can't have mattresses, we've got to go sleep on a piece of plywood in a monastery somewhere and be able that's, that's not what we're talking about. I'm not saying to give up chocolate for a month in the name of Jesus. That's not denying self. Denying self is saying no to you. It's actually living out your repentance. So what we're talking about here today is not an addition to, it's not some works added to your salvation. This is living out belief and repentance. And so if you believe, Jesus is just using some different metaphors, we're talking about the gospel here. If you believe, then this is what it looks like, you'll deny yourself. And so what was repentance? Remember the first message, repentance is you're going your own way, you realize that's not God's way, you stop and you turn to God. Denying self is, I'm not living life my way anymore. It's not my plan, not my dream, not my goals. It's yours. Not my will be done, your will be done. Not my dreams anymore, your dreams now. I'm saying no to me and whatever you want, God. That's self-denial. And so, what do you think it sounded like to these disciples who were expecting Jesus to come and to rule and to reign and to change all the politics? Try and imagine what it was like to be those 12 guys. They've been living with Jesus, walking with Jesus for two and a half years. They've seen him have power over nature. They've seen him walk, you know, calm the storm, walk on the water. They've seen him feed the 5,000. You've seen him do all this stuff, raise dead people. And then they're in this setting. They're in Caesarea Philippi, Matthew tells us, which is a, a beautiful setting, about 1,000 feet above uh, sea level and the elevation. So they're overlooking this town, which would have a ton of religious options. actually interesting to me that it happens in Caesarea Philippi. It's a place where they say that from the water, all you could see was the marble temple dedicated to Caesar. But archaeologists know there were at least 14 other temples to the god Baal, a false god that we read about in the Old Testament. And so Jesus is here amongst this place where they're probably overlooking a bunch of options. And look what happens. If you have your Bibles, you can jump back up in verse 18. We've got this little conversation with Jesus and the disciples right before this. It says, once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, well, we don't know what he was praying about. I imagine he was praying for the conversation he's about to have with his disciples and what their response is going to be. He asked them, red letters, who do the crowds say I am? So it's like an opinion poll. You've been out there. I just fed the 5,000. You've seen me do all these miracles. You've heard my teaching. I've been confronted by the religious leaders. I've confronted the religious leaders. You've seen the way that I've interacted with sinners. You see the way that I've interacted with the religious what are people out there saying? I've sent you out two by two and 72 at once. and there's, You've had to have heard some of the murmurings. And so it's kind of like Donald Trump makes a statement about immigration. Now what are people saying? Hillary Clinton goes to Chipotle. Now what are people saying? And they respond. Verse 19. They had heard this stuff. The disciples say, some say John the Baptist. That's interesting. He just had his head cut off. Others say Elijah, he lived a long time ago. And still others, that one of the prophets of long ago, maybe it wasn't Elijah, but somebody, has come back to life. You're a prophet. Have you heard that one from people? Well, Jesus is a prophet. This is actually a radical answer. Because Jews, Palestinian Jews at this time, didn't believe in prophets. They didn't believe the prophets were coming anymore. So not only do they believe that Jesus is a prophet, they believe that he might be one of the prophets who has been raised from the dead. That's a big deal. That's radical. Here's the problem. It's not radical enough. What they say is true. Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, one of the prophets, but Jesus was a prophet. It's true. It's just incomplete. It's the same as saying, well, Jesus is love. That is true. There's more to the story. 
Well, Jesus is friends with sinners. That is true. Doesn't mean he endorsed everything they did. But Jesus is grace, true. Jesus is mercy, yeah, and he's also holiness and righteousness and wrath, and he will be your judge, and he is just. Will we pick and choose what we like? It's true. Is it complete? And then Jesus says, the most important question he asks in this passage. In fact, the most important questions he asks in all of Luke. Everything in Luke points to this question. In fact, it's the most important question in the whole Bible. It's actually the most important question in your life. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? He spent two and a half years with these guys. And now's the moment. Who do you say that Jesus is? It's the most important question that you can be asked. If he's a moral teacher, not worthy to be followed. Some good examples, you can pick and choose what he did and didn't do. Bumper sticker, some stuff, which is what we oftentimes do. If he's a crazy lunatic, then we are wasting our time and we are deceived and we are foolish. Because only a lunatic would claim to do the things he did and intentionally deceive all those people. So this is the most important question you can be asked. Think about all the important questions that could be asked. What are you passionate about? That's an important question. What do you want to be when you grow up? For some of you, that's an important question. What are you, what are you most thankful for? That's an important question. Did you leave the iron on before you came to church today? It's an important question for some of you. And some of you will not hear anything else I say now. Because I said that. But no question I can ask you is more important than this. Who is Jesus to you? Who do you say Jesus is? If you answer what Peter says, then he is worthy of your trust. He is worthy for you to say no to yourself and say yes to whatever he says. If this is true, if it's not true, it's not worthy of any of it. What does Peter say? Look what he says. You are the Christ of God. Easy to miss that last part, of God. That little phrase right there, of God, means he fulfills everything in the Old Testament is said about him. To say he is the Christ is not to give him a last name. We oftentimes Jesus Christ, and so that means that's his last name. No, that's not his last name. It's become like a last name to him because he's so closely associated with all the things that were said about him in the Old Testament. Christ is actually a Hebrew title used of the one in the Old Testament that would be the only one that could come and deal with your sin. That would be the one that would have the weight of all of your iniquities on his shoulders. That would be broken, that would be forsaken, that would sit on the cross and say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's the promised one that will come and rule and reign, but before there's glory, there's suffering. And they didn't know that. If Jesus is the Christ, do you know what that means? He is your only way to be reconciled to God. You are without hope, without God, apart from Jesus Christ. He is what he said in John chapter 14 and verse 6. I am the way. There's no other way. How cruel is God if there's another way? And he let Jesus go to the cross, his own son. I am the way. I am the life. There's no other life apart from Jesus Christ. Any other life is not real life. We're like zombies, spiritually, walking around, going through the motions, doing life, but we're dead. He's the truth. There's no truth apart from Christ. We can twist it and tweak and take the things we like. That's not truth. That's deception. That's the truth. But if he is the way, the truth, and the life, then that means that he can be trusted. And that means even when he tells us no to something, he actually wants what's best for us. 
And so, like you as parents, maybe you would, as a parent, parent, you want to give your kid everything you can give your kid, every advantage, every opportunity, but you know there are times to say no to your kid. And then Jesus says no to us. And no, no sex outside of marriage. But then we say, but wait, you know, I've been married before, and so we're the exception. Maybe he actually has a better plan than you. Maybe you say no to yourself and trust him. That's denying yourself. I want to spend all my money on myself. And he says, no, store up for yourself treasures in heaven. I've got a better plan. You're so short-sighted. You're like a little kid. I've got a better plan for you. Do you trust me? You say no. Even in the no's, do you trust me? I had a friend I was talking to a couple weeks ago, last week, I think, well, I don't know, two weeks ago, we were chatting about some stuff, and he was trying to tell me uh, how sin was justifiable because of chromosomes. He's using science and talking about some of that kind of stuff. And so I'm not a scientist. So you know, a lot of Pastor Jed do all that. But I do have a friend whose uh, son has what's called Prader-Willi syndrome, which is uh, chromosomal. They call it a defect. It's the way that God made him. And uh, one of the elements of that, one of the parts of that, is that he has an insatiable hunger. He wants to eat all the time. It doesn't matter how full he is. It doesn't matter if he's got more than enough nutrition. Some parents have to lock the refrigerator, lock the pantry, and they can't let kids get access to the garbage because kids will eat cans out of the garbage. Cans. Not food. As a parent, he knows the best thing is to tell his child no. Even though that's what he wants. And you can argue, well, it's made that way. And he wants it, and then God doesn't make mistakes. And no. He can kill himself. So he has to tell him no. So even the no's are for what's best. And here Jesus is saying the no is no to you. No to your plan for your life. No to your desire. It's no to deny self. But before he tells them that, he tells them how he's going to do the very thing. He says in verse 22, it's just, he said, Jesus, or, uh, Peter says you are the Christ of God. And then verse 21, Jesus strictly warned them not to tell anyone, which seems weird, right? Since we have the Great Commission and we're supposed to go out and make disciples, it wasn't time here because people would either try to make him king by force or they would kill him early. And so Jesus tells them, don't tell anyone this. You're right about this, but don't tell anyone. And then he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. He's got to deal with sin. He's got to be killed on the cross so he can be the sacrifice for sin. And on the third day, he'll raise back to life. He'll defeat sin. He doesn't just die on the cross. He's the life. He's the way. This is the truth. There's no other way. And then he tells them, if anyone, all play, all of us, anyone, would come after me. We skipped over that phrase when we were looking at the verse the first time. Um, some of your translations say would follow me, make disciples, all mean the same thing. Very literally, this phrase means to imitate. It'd be a carbon copy. If anyone's going to follow me, imitate me, this is what you've got to do. You've got to do the things that I do. I deny myself. You think about imitation. If you ever really followed somebody, uh, not just, hey, I know, you know, Tom and Katie, what if they got married, or other than that stuff, but you really, really into something. Like if you're a kid and Kobe Bryant was your favorite player, or Tiger Woods was your favorite golfer, or Phil Mickelson, maybe try to hit it left handed, you, you imitate them. You stick your tongue out of your mouth. You're a Michael Jordan fan. You, do, you try to copy their moves. I remember when I was in fifth grade. When I was in fifth grade, I uh, played on my first tackle football team, and the day they were giving out jerseys, I picked number 20 because my favorite player at the time was a guy, he's not famous, but a guy named Joe Morris who played for the New York Football Giants. Wasn't a foot Giants fan or anything like that. I just thought this guy was an awesome running back. I wanted to be like him. The only thing I had like him was the number 20. <laughs> but I got the number 20. I remember in fifth grade football one day, our coach was yelling at us. <laughs> 
which is funny now that I look back at it as a third year. Yeah, because it mattered, right? Fifth grade football. And, uh, but, you know, every kid's going to play in the World Cup. I totally understand how all this is planned out by all the parents and coaches and stuff. So get that. He's yelling at us one day because, I don't know, what we weren't running hard enough or hitting hard enough or whatever. And he says, some of you are just happy to have a jersey. Now, that's the only thing I remember that he said that season. I liked my jersey. I had the number 20. What he was saying is, you don't want to do what football players do. You don't want to put in the work. You don't want to practice. You don't want to hit. You don't want to run. Your favorite day of practice is picture day. You're just glad to be on the team. And the reality is that's true for many Christians. We just we identify with, we identify with Christianity. Our greatest hope to seeing our, our neighbors come to Christ is that they see that our car's not in our driveway at 11 o'clock today. I think Jesus had a bigger plan than that. Our commitment is we show up at an event. Maybe we show up at two events a week. Maybe we go to a small group. Maybe we even serve for an hour. We got three hours a week we're giving to Jesus. Man, we're like the committed. (laughs) But will we do what he says to do? He says anyone must, not an option, deny self. This is not deep Christianity. This is Christianity 101, the basics, access to God. Anyone's going to follow him. Jesus isn't going to be ashamed of them. They're going to disown themselves and call to him, confess him, call upon him, follow him, deny self, say no to self, do what he did. What did he do? Think about what he just described in verse 22. He left heaven and came to this place. He was receiving perfect worship 24 hours a day. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He came here. Guess why he came here? Not because we have cool worship. Hillsong's awesome. Our worship team's great. Not dogging anybody out. Chris Tomlin's probably a thousand more songs we can all sing. There's some hymns that everybody loves. Amazing grace. That's not why Jesus came. He didn't come here because it would be fun. I wonder what it's like to be human and to be tempted and to be tried and experience suffering. I wonder what it's like to leave a place where there's no death and no crying and no tears and no pain and, and none of that stuff and to come here. This place stinks, by the way. And there is disease, and there is death, and there is loss, and there is struggle. And we get tired, and we work, and there's frustration, and there's thorns and thistles from the ground. And corporate CEOs steal all the money, and people are raped, and kids are abused. They came here for you. And he was beaten and mocked and nailed to a cross. And it was joy. Hebrews chapter 12 says, to fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. You were the joy. He said no to himself. Became obedient even to death on a cross for you. And it was joy. And he says, if anyone's going to come after me, imitate me, you've got to say no to yourself. For the sake of others. For the sake of their spiritual well-being, for the sake of their physical well-being, for the sake of their emotional well-being. Can you imagine if we actually did this stuff? I think it's really interesting that Jesus is in Caesarea Philippi, though, with all those religious options behind him. The temple to Caesar, all the temples to Baal, and he's telling his disciples this. And with all the options we have, you know what most of us want to do? We'll pick and choose the stuff we like about Jesus. We leave the other stuff. I like his mercy. Click, follow. Deny yourself, click, unfollow. 
like me with DeAndre Jordan. Ooh, come to you, you give rest. I'm tired. Click follow. Take up your cross. Click unfollow. Love and grace. Click follow, follow. Righteous and justice. Unfollow, unfollow. Holiness, be perfect as your own. Unfollow, unfollow. Don't lust, unfollow. And we pick and choose what we like. That's not what Jesus meant. If anyone wants to follow me, he must take up his cross, deny himself, follow, be an imitator of me, a carbon copy of me. And how do we do that? How do we deny self? The ultimate picture of that is the cross, which is the second command. Any follower of Jesus must bear a cross. Any, that's everyone, anyone follower of Jesus must take up their cross. So what is Jesus talking about here? Verse 23, he says, Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, first command, take up his cross, second command. Getting these two is the key to obeying the third command to follow him. And so what does that mean? What does that mean to take up a cross? What does it mean to bear a cross? We hear people say it in our culture, that I, this is the cross I have to bear. Let me tell you before we talk about what taking up a cross does mean, what it does not mean. It does not mean any difficulty or any inconvenience that happens in your life is your cross. That's what we say. We say things like, I got a flat tire this week. That's just the cross I have to bear. Kids got the flu. Just the cross we have to bear. I've got a colic in my hair since I was a little kid. That's the cross we bear. My teeth aren't straight. That's the cross I bear. That is not what Jesus meant here. That's what we've come up with. That's what we've interpreted in with our Christian culture. We've put this phraseology on things that wasn't what Jesus meant, and it's no first century listener heard that. What they heard when Jesus said, you must take up your cross, was an execution sentence. If anyone wants to be my follower, come register now, and you get potentially win two tickets to the Bahamas. No, that's the evangelical church today and what we talk about when we say about Jesus, following Jesus. What if everything you've heard in the evangelical church has been wrong? What if the popular Christian books are wrong? And what if it really means, and God really means, what Jesus says here? Are you a follower? Because what Jesus says here when he says, take up your cross, is this. You've got to die. Because anybody, you can learn all the facts you want about a crucifixion. Here's the one thing you need to know. Anybody who was being crucified, it was a one-way trip. They, weren't com- they were committed. And so what the first century listeners heard when Jesus said, you've got to take up your cross, is they heard somebody who was being sentenced for a crime that would be hung around their neck, they'd be flogged and beaten and then handed about a 200-pound cross beam that they would then have to carry to their place of execution, and they would be hung on a cross. They all died different ways. Some were eaten alive by birds. It oftentimes took a lot longer than the crucifixion we read about Jesus. Many died from suffocation and exhaustion. Can you imagine dying from exhaustion? Like dying. None of you been really tired. Dying. William Barclay tells us, and he comments on this passage, that around the time Jesus was 11 years old, there were some guys, one particular name, his name was Judas, but not the Judas that we think of uh, from betraying Jesus. It was a popular name then. There was a guy named Judas who rebelled against Rome. Rome was in charge. They ruled today. If you read the history books, it was by Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. But the way they did it was they killed people. And so this guy rebelled against Rome. He broke into the Roman armory and he stole some of their stuff. And Rome reacted quickly and swiftly. And what they did is they burned down the city that this guy was from. It was about four miles from Nazareth. They burned it to the ground. They took all the citizens there. They didn't even have anything to do with this guy. And they sold them into slavery, human trafficking. 
And then they took the 2,000 guys that were part of his rebellion and they nailed them to a cross and lined the street with them. Can you imagine if on your way to church today you saw 2,000 people lining the streets of Briar Creek Parkway? I'd imagine that would be seared into your mind and you would never forget that. And so I wonder, Jesus being four miles away from this as an 11-year-old, if he walked down that street knowing what he would do one day, knowing why he was sent, if he watched those men die and what that was like for him, knowing. I wonder what it was like for Peter and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew and all those other guys and everyone else who's listening who's seen a crucifixion to hear, if anyone's going to come follow me, you've got to take up a cross. I'd imagine some people were out that day. I don't know when Judas was done. This might have been the moment. What about you? What does it really mean for us? Because I'm going to bet everyone that's in this room right now is probably not going to be crucified on a cross. No matter how faithful you are, that's probably not going to happen. In our culture and in our situation, that's probably not going to happen. Maybe inconvenienced at some point for your faith. Maybe some slight persecution. I doubt that will happen. So what does it mean? Dwight Pentecost tells us what the cross meant for Jesus. He says, The cross in the life of Christ was the test of his obedience to the will of God. It was to him what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was to Adam and the Garden of Eden. And if you look at the life of Christ, he's continually being tempted to try and be king without a cross. You go back to his temptations that took place in Luke chapter 4. You can read about it in Matthew chapter 4 on your own. The second temptation is you can have all of this. You can have the kingdom. You can have it all. Just bow down and worship Satan. In other words, glory, no suffering. Jesus knows there's always suffering before glory. We want glory, no suffering. We want it in our lives. If Jesus had to suffer, okay, but we don't want it. There's always suffering before glory. Ask the athlete. Ask the soldier. There's always suffering before there's glory. And Jesus knew this was true. He overcomes that temptation. It's Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. It says, The devil led him up to a high place, showed him in an instant the kingdoms of the world, and said to him, I'll give you all their authority. What does Jesus say he has at the end? All authority has been given to me. And splendor. He gets to be king of kings. For it's been given to me, Satan says, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it'll all be yours. Jesus answered, it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And there's another temptation. If you jump down to verse 13 in Luke chapter 4, you see this spooky verse, eerie verse. When the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Okay, you overcame that battle. I'll be back. There'll be more. You think Jesus was tempted to be the king without a cross multiple other times? How about in this passage? If you read uh, Matthew's account of the passage we're reading in Luke chapter 9, right after Peter says that you are the Christ and then Jesus predicts his death, Peter then comes to Jesus and rebukes Jesus. That's never a good idea. Just a tip. (laughs) And then Jesus says to him, Get behind me, Satan. Same guy who just said you are the Christ of God. He's not Satan himself. He's believing lies. He's believing the lies that you can have glory without the suffering. Jesus just predicted his death, and then Peter rebuked him by saying, No, 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 you don't have, not you. That's not going to happen to you. You're just going to rule. You're just going to create our comfortable Christian culture, and we're going to hang out with you. Like, we're close to you. And Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan. You don't get to twist the truth and decide for yourself. 
This is what happens. I go to the cross, and if you're going to follow me, you've got to go to the cross too. The ultimate act of obedience for you. For Jesus, it was the cross. Philippians chapter 2, he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. What is it for us? Well, it's interesting when you watch Jesus. He's calling people to follow him all throughout the Gospels. He points out what would be the ultimate act of obedience for the people that want to follow him. It's a test of their faith. Just as this, the cross was a test of Jesus, and the tree was a, temp, a test for Adam and Eve, there's different people that have different things. The rich young ruler, it's his money. If you jump a little bit further in Luke chapter 9, we don't have these verses on the slides, but if you have a Bible, you can look over Luke chapter 9, verses uh, 57 through 62. You've got three different people that come to Jesus, and he basically tells them, hey, got to count the cost before you come follow me. He, he's walking along, and one guy comes up, and he just says voluntarily, I'll follow you. What would the modern-day evangelical church say to this guy? All right, sign up. Let's go. I've got one friend who's not a believer in Jesus. We've been talking about the faith. And he says, it's just, you guys make it so easy. Just believe. Jesus didn't do that. Look what Jesus does. He says, foxes have holes. Birds have nests. The Son of Man doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. You know what he's doing to this guy? He's saying, you know what your thing is? It's comfort. What if following me, I don't become a means to your comfort, but you're going to have to take up a cross. You're not going to be ready to talk about a cross. You're still caught up on comfort. So he's talking about comfort with this guy. Then Jesus continues to walk along, and Jesus calls the guy. He says, follow me. Verse 59, the guy said, first let me go bury my father. And then Jesus says a statement, and you could think, Jesus has no compassion. He says, let the dead bury the dead. Let the spiritually dead deal with the spiritually dead. You want to come follow me? His dad wasn't even dead yet. He's saying, what you really want is you want your plan and claim to be a follower of mine. And he's doing this for the benefit of those people so they don't think that they're followers of his when they're not. And so then he goes to the next guy, tells him to come follow, and the guy says, I'll come follow you, but first I'm going to go back and say goodbye to my family. Now, Jesus doesn't hate family, but he says if you don't love me more than your family, you're not worthy to follow me. He says here in this passage, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. It doesn't mean if you're a missionary, you can't ever go home and see your family again. What Jesus is talking about here is you can't have one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in the kingdom of this earth. You're either in or you're not. And you need to know, and Jesus is doing these people a service by not letting them be deceived into thinking they're followers when they're not ready to follow. And so if Jesus were to come into contact with you and you were to say to him, I want to follow you, what would he say to you? He says to one person, well, it's not going to be comfortable. To another person, he says, give away all your money. To another person, he says, you've got to come right now. It's all, you're all in or you're not in. What would he say to you? You've got to deal with your... If you can figure out what that thing is today, that's a win. If you deal with it, that's life-changing. I was reading one person this week who said, if there's something in your life that's hindering you from following Jesus, you've got to get rid of it. So I just ask you, what's the, what's the one, if there's something that's stopping you from following Jesus, what is it? What is it that would stop you from being totally sold out to Jesus today? What is it that's hindering you? What's your obstacle? What's that thing? And then I think about what Jesus said about it. He said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Better to not be a really deeply devoted Christian. Better to enter the kingdom of heaven without a hand and without an eye maimed than it is to go to hell. And have all those things. We're talking basic Christianity here. We're not talking advanced stuff. We're talking about whether you're in or not in. No, I prayed a prayer. I didn't ask that question. What about Jesus' definition? 
What Jesus is talking about here is not adding to salvation. He's talking a different metaphor, how to live out what does repentance look like, what does belief look like. It looks like denying yourself and taking up your cross, ultimate obedience. It looks like saying no to you, yes to God, not my will, but your will. When Jesus is saying, is there any other way? Do you know what he's asking for? There's a way other than the cross. And there wasn't. And there isn't for us. Without the cross, there's no Christ. Without the cross in the life of the follower, there's no Christian. So are you willing to take up your cross? If so, if you deny yourself, if you follow Christ, then you will follow Jesus. You'll be a follower. If you take up your cross and deny yourself, the third command happens. And follow me. The third point is very redundant. Any follower of Jesus must follow Jesus. Like that? That's pretty memorable. Any follower of Jesus must follow Jesus Anyone who's a follower of Jesus will be about what Jesus is about. Like I said, those two first two commands, if you do those two things, the third thing happens. If you do those two things, if you deny yourself, putting other people's best interests ahead of yours, uh, thinking about their spiritual needs, their emotional needs, their physical needs, if you're willing to take the ultimate act of obedience, deal with the idolatry in your life, and follow Jesus, then you will daily, on a regular basis, be following Jesus. And what does it mean to be about what he's about? Well, he's about coming and seeking and saving the lost, gathering together to himself a kingdom of people that aren't a kingdom of darkness, that are a kingdom of the light, gathering together uh, people that are going to worship him for all of eternity, that are living for the sake of a different kingdom. And that's what you'll be about. That's following him. Now, easy way to end this service would be to say, all right, let's pray. We're going to sing a song. But this is like world-changing stuff. Like, Think about if we would do that. If Christians would do this rather than just attend an event, get the jersey, whatever. Do you, you realize what this would be like? I heard one popular pastor one time uh, give this analogy, Francis Chan. And he was talking about making disciples, and he said, um, what a lot of times uh, Christians do is they'll talk a lot about this stuff. They never actually do it. And he gave the analogy of, he said, uh, it's like if I told my daughter to go clean her room. And then she came back to me and she said, Dad, uh, I've gotten together with a bunch of other kids in our neighborhood. And we've been talking about what you meant when you said clean your room. It's called Bible study. And, and they're talking about this. And, they're, and then they said, Dad, uh, we've even memorized the phrase clean your room. And we can say it back to you in Greek. Clean your room, Dad. And do you know what the dad wants to know? Did you clean your room? Are you doing this stuff? Are you really willing to deny yourself and take up your cross? I saw some Christians that have lost their life. There were some uh, Nigeria. There's some people from Boko Haram that are actually coming to Christ because of the boldness of Christians that are being martyred in Africa. Uh, in February, there were 21 guys that had their heads cut off by ISIS in Egypt. I read an article this week, some of the wives of the men that were in that video uh, one woman said the way that she knew that her husband had been martyred and had his head cut off uh, by ISIS was because she saw on television when the jihadists put it on TV that they were cutting their heads off. So she saw it. For two days, she was in deep mourning. After two days, she said, I had incredible comfort and felt so proud of my husband. Because in that video, the men were still crying out to Jesus as they were being killed. Another woman of uh, those 21 guys that were being killed, and some of you maybe have seen this video or have at least seen articles about this, she said that she's praying for the jihadists, that they might come to Christ because the guys were calling out to Christ for comfort and calling out to Christ in faithfulness in the, in, the, in the moment. That was their cross. They didn't literally die on a cross, but they gave their lives for Jesus. See, a lot of us, we talk about the cross. Most of us aren't even willing for discomfort, like the, the one guy in, in, the, in verse 52 through, or 57 through 62. We don't even want a sliver, much less a, much less a cross. 
Like if there was, a, if it was inconvenient to be a Christian, would you be one? What about when the church loses its tax exempt status? It will happen at some point. You don't get a benefit, a tax benefit from the government for giving money. Will you still give money? If the answer is no, you're not doing it for the right reason now. But I promise you, when tax exempt status is taken away, giving will go down. That's just an inconvenience. What if you became marginalized for being a Christian? What if the government said, if you identify as a Christian, we're taking away your home. You don't have a right to own land. Would you? We don't even want a sliver, much less a cross. We're not really ready to talk about what we have our heads cut off, what we give our whole lives. We even obey. Listen, attendance at church goes down when it rains. I'm not kidding. Like, that's where we, that's the culture we live in. We're afraid of some social ostracization because we say what God says. Jesus says, you take up your cross. Some people denying yourself. That means saying no to American culture and going living in a hut in Madagascar. No air conditioning. <laughs> and telling people about Jesus. Some people mean saying no to a job promotion because it's not helping you fulfill God's plan. But from all worldly perspectives, you'd say, yeah, some of you, you need to crinkle up your goal sheet, throw it away, and ask God, what are your goals for my life? What is your plan for my life? That's denying self, taking up the cross, and following him. It's total surrender. It's life-changing stuff. Can you imagine if we do it? This should change some of your worlds. Some of you should realize you're not a follower. Father, I pray. I pray for our hearts. Pray for our lives. I pray that you would please speak. Please speak to each individual that hears these words. And take your word. Take anything that I've said that's not what you once said and delete it and take your word and just implant it in our hearts. Don't let anyone be deceived into thinking they're a follower if they're not. If someone needs to place their faith in you today, I pray they would. If there are people that have been professing you as Savior and haven't been following you and there's something that's hindering them, I pray they would deal with that thing today. I pray that you would call some unto you and call someone to radical sacrifice for you and call someone to a radical Christianity for you. In Jesus' name I pray.